Welcome to Sunday morning, to this time of worship, and to the third week of Advent as we celebrate the theme, There is One. When you gaze at the manger scene and the babe in the manger, we understand that there is one child who has made one way to the Father, to God, and has given us the opportunity to know the one Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And yes, through Jesus, we can know the one love, the one pure love, the perfect love. And only the love of God given to us through Christ can allow us to know God's love for us personally. Today, we celebrate that one love that became so manifested and known when God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to us. So today, I invite you to journey with me to the manger scene, to the nativity. From the Latin language, the word nativity translates from nativus, the idea of birth or birthplace. Through the scriptures, as the Holy Spirit guides us, may we encounter afresh and anew that place, the nativity, where God stepped into humanity, where Christ was born. It was St. Francis of Assisi in the year 1223 who was said to have erected the first nativity scene, the first live nativity scene at that. He was inspired from a recent visit to the place that we know as the Holy Land, and he returned and erected a, a living nativity scene for the purpose, and I quote St. Francis, of cultivating the worship of Christ. And so may we, uh, may we go to that original nativity and have our worship of Christ cultivated, encouraged, and inspired as we focus on the one love. The story of the birth of Christ, the birth narrative, locates us in Luke chapter 2 where we encounter the grand summary of the birth narrative, God in Christ has stepped into the world. God gave his son, and we know from the scriptures, particularly John 3, 16, that very familiar passage, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Why? So that the world through him might be saved. And so the birth narrative of our Lord announces that God in Christ has stepped into the world so that the world through him might be saved. As we uh, venture into the story of the birth of our Lord from Luke chapter 2, uh, we discover three emphases of the narrative of Jesus' birth. First, as we enter the story, we notice that there is on the world stage an incredible series of events that reveals the culture and condition of the world at the time Christ was born. For God so loved the world. And so as we enter into the story of the birth of Christ, may we look at the condition of the world at the time that Christ was born. As we move deeper into the birth narrative, we'll notice the emphasis of God himself reaching down to orchestrate all of the details perfectly for the entrance of Christ our Lord. And then as we come to the conclusion of this portion of the birth narrative of our Lord, we will discover afresh and anew that the entire story proclaims 
the love of God, the world that God loved, God himself reaching in and demonstrating his love in the most powerful way possible. He sent his only son. So let's journey to the nativity by reading from Luke chapter two, verses one through three. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius or Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into their own city. The first emphasis of the birth, na birth narrative reveals the condition of the world. Let's take a look at how the world became described in these first three verses. When we read these these words, we notice that the global stage represents man's attempt to rule. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus. Now, uh, Augustus ruled as emperor of the entire civilized world at this time. And so when we peer into the world and the culture representing the present setting of the entrance of Christ, the birth of Christ, we notice a global stage referencing man's attempt to rule. Uh, Caesar Augustus actually ruled in the Roman Empire from 30 BC to 14 AD. So for 44 years, he was the absolute monarch of, of the empire. In fact, in 27 BC, history teaches us that Caesar named himself Caesar Augustus. So he gave himself the name Augustus to demonstrate his absolute rule and the power in his reign. So he certainly thought a lot of himself and imposed that same opinion on those under his emperorship. So for 44 years, Caesar ruled and his rule was one of peace. But when you subjugate everyone, certainly what would seem to be peace would be present. And, and Caesar brought an end to a lot of the uh, ravaging civil wars that had been splintering the Roman Empire. So in this global stage, Caesar sent out a decree, a census, if you will. So from the global stage, we narrow a bit to another fact in this opening emphasis of the condition of the world at the time of Christ's birth. And we notice that this census was the decree that Caesar made throughout the Roman Empire. And there is, uh, in biblical scholarship, uh, debate concerning the actual identity of this census. The date seems to be um, arguable among many scholars, but nonetheless, we know that the, the reference to Cyrenius governing Syria as a Roman governor over that region references a, a time in history when issuing a census became very common. In fact, you have Caesar Augustus and Cyrenius or Quirinius and then Herod over the, over the part of the Hebrew Roman Empire. So you have these three individuals who history teaches were, were really committed to these decrees of, of a census. Now, again, there's some debate over the date of the census referenced here, but I noticed something unique in the opening of this narrative of the birth of our Lord. Verse one, in those days there went out a decree, that would be past tense, a decree went out. But notice the next statement, that the entire world, the entire empire should be taxed or should be registered. Well, that references a present tense. And I find it interesting that this present tense might actually indicate 
that there was not just one census, but a series of a census being taken. In fact, some of the ah biblical history, history that is general about this time of of, of the world's history, uh, would indicate that perhaps every 14 years or so within the Roman Empire, a census was taken. And the census was taken for two specific reasons. First, to uh, give an estimate or a measure of the military capability of the Roman Empire. So a census would be taken to determine the vastness of of the people and the presence of power militarily. A second reason for the census, as history teaches, would be to, to renew the report of those who would be taxed so as to, again, build an estimate of the, uh, of the income of the taxation. So there you have it, as, as it is in a lot of ways today in, in the global impact uh, of politics and rules and reigns of, of individuals. There were two reasons for the census in this story, power and money. Again, not too dissimilar to how men uh, rule and reign today over others. And so in the midst of this global stage and with this census, there were cultural adjustments that, that needed to be followed. One particular adjustment would be that of Joseph, who because he was a part of a lineage that, that was re referenced in another city. Joseph had to actually relocate for a short period of time in order to participate in this census. Now, there were other senses that history teachers did not require an adjustment or a temporary relocation, but this particular time obviously indicated that there was an absolute mandate that you had to relocate to your homeland for this particular counting, taxation, our census. So upon the global stage, there were cultural adjustments through this census, which actually um, reveals the unfolding of prophecy. And I, and I really love this. On the world stage, all of this vying uh, for the power of man to rule and to reign, bringing adjustments throughout the empire, actually served the fulfillment of prophecy. One particular piece of pro prophecy would be the relocation of Joseph and Mary from, from Galilee to Judea, from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And so the state of the world at the time Christ entered referenced a time where man's attempt to rule on the global stage was at an all-time high, at an all-time aggressive um, place of, of expressive rule and emperorship, which caused adjustments in the larger culture of the Roman Empire, but allowed prophecy to unfold right before the eyes of history. So, wow, the, the entrance of Christ was met with a world stage that actually confirmed the identity of the Christ child. There was a there was a documentary uh, several years ago uh, on ABC hosted by celebrated reporter Peter Jennings. the The title of the documentary simply stated "The Search for Jesus," and uh, Jennings offered an introduction into this documentary that that I have that I'd love to read for you verbatim, which will reveal how. The impact of Jesus Christ has certainly 
continue to manifest that, that global influence. So this is how Jennings opened that documentary. Hello, I'm Peter Jennings, and we have been searching for Jesus, as reporters, that is, because it's an irresistible story. And whatever your faith or religion, there's simply no denying the extraordinary influence that Jesus has had and that he still has in the lives of people. So yes, the world stage demonstrated this extraordinary story, but we simply can't stop at the observation of the developing story. We must move deeper. So we continue reading as we uh, join God's word in verse 4 through verse 6. And this is what we read from Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 4. So Joseph, after the census had been declared, the decree, the decree had been made throughout the inhabited civilized world, Joseph went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to register with Mary to whom he was engaged and who was great with child. And while they were there, the days were accomplished for her to deliver. So we, we move from the world and the emphases that we have discovered there to the second emphases of the birth narrative, God and God's hands sovereignly reaching into that global stage to perform his perfect will. This becomes a very exciting part of the birth narrative. First, consider the journey. Uh, referencing the journey, I indicate the journey that Joseph made with Mary from Galilee to Judea, from Nazareth to Bethlehem. The journey actually references that which would be social in the lives of Joseph and Mary. The, the narrative becomes an, an, a demonstration of the social dynamic of this part of the, the story. The social referencing uh, first Joseph's identity. He was of the house and he was of the lineage of David. And he brought Mary with him to Bethlehem. Now, the, the census referenced here and other like census would not necessarily mandate that Mary had to come. Their relationship, their betrothal was at this point contractual, but not a fully consummated marriage. It was not consummated at all and not complete at all concerning the Jewish uh, a frame of, of marriage and betrothal. So Joseph and Mary are just, just betrothed. They're only contractually together. And yet through that divine conception, Mary is with child. At the time that they travel, some estimate that she could be in her third trimester. And so there was no way that Joseph was going to leave her in in Nazareth while he traveled to Bethlehem. So although Mary may not have been mandated to travel with him as they were not yet married, she still accompanied him. And, and I will tell you, the journey becomes such a significant part of the affirmation and of the identity of the Christ child, of Christ our Lord. The journey referenced Joseph being of the house and the lineage of David. Now, we, we simply need to read back to 2 Samuel chapter 7 to hear very familiar words that were prophesied over David concerning the Davidic covenant, the covenant God made with David. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, the Davidic covenant 
between God and David expressed this. God speaking to David through the prophet, your house and kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. And so that prophecy foreshadowed that the coming Messiah would be born through the lineage of David's family. Now, when we turn to the New Testament, particularly Matthew chapter 1, we see an amazing demonstration of this from that gospel's record of the birth narrative of our Lord. And if, and if you were reading in Matthew chapter 1, you would, you would begin seeing a list of names from Abraham all the way through to Jesus. And in the, in the third part of that intensive list of names, you come to Joseph and Mary. And the scripture actually uh, proclaims who were the earthly parents and gave birth to Jesus, who is the Messiah. Fourteen generations are listed here from Abraham to Jesus, including in the, in the last third of this list, David's lineage. And so socially concerning the identity of Mary and Joseph, and most significantly, Christ himself, the journey depicted that identity and God's sovereign hand moving and creating his perfect will in such a, a phenomenal way. Second to the journey, we now come to the location. Joseph and Mary are now in Bethlehem. This becomes significant, again, from another piece of property, a prophecy that was revealed clearly from the Old Testament in, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Again, from Old Testament prophecy, we read, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah, but one will come from you to be ruler over all of Israel, and his origin will be from antiquity to eternity. Obviously, a reference to the Messiah, to Christ our Lord. And so the location in the narrative references Bethlehem, the birthplace of Christ. So now we see the significance of why Mary accompanied Joseph. Because Bethlehem became that place, a place that can mean fruitfulness or fruitfulness through, through bread. And oh, how powerful this becomes as a demonstration of Jesus, the bread of life, who, who was born in Bethlehem to fulfill what the prophets foretold many centuries earlier. So in the birth narrative, we have the, the social uh, significance of the narrative, the journey from, from this location to this because of David's social identity, his personal identity, and that confirms the identity of Christ. And then second, in the narrative movement, we, we discover the location in Bethlehem prophesied as the place of the birth of Christ. But we have, as a third fact, a rep referencing God's perfect will being performed in, in, in the coming of the Christ child, we, we notice the arrival, verse 6, and so it was that while they were there, Mary's days were accomplished that she should deliver the arrival. This marks the very moment that God stepped into humanity. The very moment that God stepped into history. This becomes the arrival. Heaven meets mankind personally to bring the significance of salvation for eternity, forever. 
the arrival. The time came for her to deliver. Listen to the words of John chapter 1, verse 14. In John chapter 1, verse 14, we hear, The Word became flesh and lived among us, took up residence among us, and we observed his glory, glory as of the one and only begotten of the Father. The Word, God's very presence, became flesh. The becoming flesh, from the Latin translation of the scriptures, uh, the word would be incarnatus, incarnation. Theology uh, states uh, God becoming flesh as the incarnation, meaning becoming in the flesh. The word became flesh. God himself, the perfect word, Jesus Christ, his son, became flesh without ceasing to be God. And God stepped into our lives, fulfilling all the promises that God has given us in his word. Particularly in Hebrews, that New Testament book of the beauty of, of the significance of what Christ has fulfilled. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, we read that in former days God spoke uh, to the fathers through the prophets, but now he speaks through the Son. And we continue reading in verse 3 of Hebrews 1, who is the fullness, the effulgence, the radiance, the full presentation of God himself. God is here. He has arrived. And so the second emphasis of the birth narrative, second to the global stage that became set by God's own sovereignty, we now see God himself reaching in and orchestrating the journey, the location, and the arrival of Christ our Lord. Pastor and author Clark Cothran told a story of an experience he had when he was five years old, playing in his mother's office at her desk where she served the Canyon College in Phoenix, Arizona as the Dean of Women. This is the story he told. As I played at my mother's desk, I would watch as students of the college would walk slowly down the hall toward the president's office and stop. They would rub their sweaty palms on their pants, take a deep breath, straighten their shoulders, and knock. The door would creak open, and that's when, while I was playing, I would catch a glimpse of the president's shiny black wingtip shoes. And then a steady, strong hand would reach out and shake the trembling hand of the student. And then the student would disappear into the mysterious chamber known as the president's office. I figured that walking into that room must be pretty much like going before the throne of judgment. It was terrifying. It was a terrifying thought, that is, until the day that the president stooped into my world. I was playing with my toy car at my mom's desk uh, near the hallway just outside the president's office, when the door opened. And when the door opened, there they were, those shiny black wingtip shoes. The next thing that I knew, President Robert Sutherland of the university, the biggest man on campus, dressed in his pinstripe three-piece suit, knelt down. He placed the knee of his crisply creased trousers on the hallway floor, and he knelt. And then he looked at me while I was playing with my car and said, May I have a turn?
And after that, we played cars together. But then President Sutherland looked at me and said, hey, would you do me a favor? Call me Dr. Bob. Catherine goes on to write, that's the day my opinion about all college presidents changed. I can see, he continues, how some people might think that God is powerful, frightening, and untouchable. Yet, after I met him, after I met God, my opinion about him changed. Because John 1.14 tells us, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Catherine concludes, when he stopped low into my world, Dr. Bob helped me to understand that is exactly what God has done for me. God stooped into our world. He became one of us. He became flesh. He sent his son. And so the birth narrative reveals the global stage of the world. But the birth narrative emphatically reveals the emphasis of God and God performing his perfect will. God became one of us as he sent his son, Jesus Christ. Please do not lose the emphasis of this truth. Now we conclude with verse seven of Luke chapter two. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Christ had come. God had stepped in. God would never need to do this again once for all, he sent Christ to us and became one of us. Mary gave birth to her son, that beautiful, divine, perfect and pure conception, conceived in a virgin's womb, became reality when she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in the swaddling infant clothing, and she laid him in that trough, in the manger because there was no room in the inn. The third emphasis of this beautiful birth narrative summarizes the love, the love of God. His love became fully known when Christ, the Lamb of God, went to the cross and took upon himself our stripes so that we might be healed. But oh, do you see the love in the fact that God gave Scripture proves that no one should separate God sending his son from the reality of God's love. They're, they're inextricably connected. God loves us. There are two expressions of God's love all throughout the Scripture. First, God's love, this one love, demonstrates God's nature. When you understand the reference to God's love within the word of God, you, you understand that love, his love, fully defines his nature. First John 4, 8 declares God is love. So one of the two expressions of perfect love references that God himself is love. This references his nature. But because God is perfect and holy, God will never act contrary to his nature. And so a second fact of God's love is that God demonstrated his love. God demonstrated his love in this way. God is love. Fact number one about perfect love. 
God is love. This is his nature. And second, God demonstrated his love in this way. In what way? That he sent his only son. God gave. God demonstrated his love, 1 John 4, 9 states, because he sent his one and only son for us. That very familiar verse, John 3, 16 and 17, for God so loved the world. So the birth narrative from Luke chapter 2 demonstrates that God in Christ has stepped into the world. And then John 3, 16 and 17 demonstrates that that act of sending Christ references the perfect love of God. I am sure you can recall John 3, 16. Listen to this translation of that great verse. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. And then verse 17 of the same chapter. For God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God sent Jesus so that the world might be saved through him, that we could know by understanding that Jesus references and represents God and his love and his forgiveness for our sin. We, we know this. The truth has come. Now it is up to us to respond. Will you respond to God's love today? Advent and the recognition of the birth of Christ at Christmas time becomes a phenomenal opportunity to recognize the love of God and to say, yes, God, I respond to your love. I trust you and I accept by faith what Jesus has done on the cross for the forgiveness of my sin. And I, and I believe he died and rose again. Oh, could that be your prayer today if you've never by faith received the love of God that he's made known in Jesus Christ? I'm sure you know the animated story, A Charlie Brown Christmas, uh, created by Charles Schultz that aired on CBS for almost 50 years in, in, in prime time and in syndication. A bit of a backstory of that wonderful, <laughs> beloved uh, cartoon that references Linus quoting this very story from Luke 2 uh, before a large audience. A backstory you'll find interesting is that Charles Schultz, the creator of the, of, of the peanut cartoon, and certainly the author of the Charlie Brown Christmas, went to the executives of CBS to say, "Hey, we we need to we need to uh, put this story out there." Well, they were hesitant because of such a strong reference to the birth of Christ, but Schultz lovingly but persistently requested, and they finally agreed. and And over fifty years, this cartoon aired with incredible feedback. But when Schultz was uh, lovingly but persistently asking for the cartoon to be aired. This was his statement to the CEOs of that network. If not for us, who is going to tell this story? We need to tell this story. And he wasn't referencing the Charlie Brown Christmas. He was referencing Luke chapter two, the story of Jesus Christ. If you and I do not live out this story, then who will? May, may we live in the reality of what God has accomplished in Christ our Lord, that one love, the perfect love of God proves that there is only one. His name is Jesus. And I pray that you know him. And I pray that this Advent season, you know him afresh and anew as the full expression of God's love for you. And may we live in that love so that others will know Jesus Christ. If we do not, then who will? May I pray with you. 
Father God, thank you for this moment we've had. Thank you for this third week of Advent, focusing on the one love you have given us and proven through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending your son. We celebrate his birth, but we also celebrate his life and his death and his resurrection. And we celebrate the new life that you've given us through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, for those who have listened today and have never trusted you by faith, oh God, may they, may they trust you today. And for those who know you, Father, may we walk having experienced your love and may we live that love out because if we do not, then who will? Father, give us the strength to genuinely and authentically live your love before this world who is in such desperate need to know the love of Christ. Like the world, when Christ was born, the world today is vying for rule and reign and power and prosperity. And Father, may we break into that dangerous downward spiral and may we show the love of Christ to a hurting world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And together we said, amen. On your screen, you'll see a website location. Please respond. I'd love to know how God's speaking to your heart. And, and we are so grateful you joined this online service. Join us in person anytime you're ready. We would love to have you. I'm so excited to be with you next week as well for part four of this Advent series. There is one. Love you a lot. Can't wait to see you again. God bless.